dudes and dudettes, Michelangelo here just to tell you that you are listening to the Points of Interest podcast. Am I right? Did I get that right? Absolutely. All right, absolutely. Bodacious Cowabunga! Woo! And Elegant Weapon is brought to you by Nemesis Studios. What are y'all doing in here? We're smoking reefer. And you don't want no part of this shit. An elegant weapon for the more civilized age. This is a journey into sound. And you know who the biggest elegant weapon is? I can't tell you where it's located, but it's uh, got something to do with me. Meanwhile, at the Hall of Justice... Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 97 of An Elegant Weapon. I am your host, my name is Jay. Please excuse me while I flick my bick. I want you to take the Frankenstein shit, the deer shit, the green monster, the bling, and the bling bling, and I want you to roll it all into one joint. No one's ever been brave enough to try that. One man is. Roll it. There we go. Now we can get down to business. Welcome back, kids. Thank you to Derek of Drunk on Comics for joining us last episode. He was more drunkenly drunk on comics than usual, and that made for a fantastic time. So anybody who checked that out, thank you very much. We had a great time recording it. Tonight, we have a special guest joining us to continue our long line of fabulous independent comic book creators. He is formerly a writer of Tales of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. He's got a brand new book out. It's called Devil Dealers. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome all the way from Saskatchewan, Canada, Mr. Ross May. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. (laughs) (laughs) Which may sound weird to people, but yes, this is a take two. You know how the podcast gods can kind of frown upon you once in a while and things get all technically crappy. So we're going for another run around, but we had a good time the first time, so I don't see why the second won't be a good time either. (laughs) Yeah, sure. I was just saying that we've got some rehearsed material now, yes, yeah. Absolutely. You're going to have these stories down pat for telling times. <laughs> mm. So what we got into first uh, before we talked about basically you're out in Saskatchewan. And uh, have, have you always been writing since you were a little kid? Were you always fascinated with the telling of the stories? I think so, yeah. I've I've been writing little stories since I was a kid, for sure. Yeah, that's fun. I remember uh, like creative writing when it was young, and you know, getting. A... <laughs> Did you ever keep any of your like your old stories from back in the day? I've got a couple from grade school. Yeah. Don't you love reading that stuff? And like, in a way, it's so bad, but in a way, it's like, how did I ever imagine this crap? <laughs> There's a bit of that. Yeah. Yeah, I've had a few of those. So, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Da, 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 da. 
<laughs> that's a hell of a <laughs> thing. Not? Too. Why not? Hey, heck yeah! I'll probably I'll probably get tossed in there afterwards, anyways. But uh, and yeah, and compliments to you for having. We talked about this before. Uh, Townsend Coleman, Michelangelo on the introduction. That's great. Yeah, that was right. Uh, I met him at the Ontario Collectors Con, and he was a fabulous little interview. Uh, he didn't have too much time to talk, and uh, it was one of the few times I actually fanboyed out a little because I, I usually, you know, I keep pretty cool in those situations when I'm talking to people, but I just couldn't help myself, and I definitely say more in the interview than he got in, Okay. because I just couldn't help but gush a little, you know, I was just, yeah. you know, I just had so much I wanted to say to him, I, I kind of got a little carried away. I feel the same way that there's sometimes, uh, in fact, uh, uh, Calgary, they're having a lot of Ninja Turtles people, they have, they have Kevin Eastman over, I've met Kevin Eastman before. But they've got uh, most of the voice actors from the 87 cartoon show, including Townsend, coming in. And, you know, I'm looking at the list of other celebrities they're having, and some of them are bigger names, and I don't really care. But but those guys, oh, that'll be a lot of fun, yeah. That'll be super fun, especially with the cameo they just made on the... uh, On the Nickelodeon show, yeah. On the new series, that was super fun they got to do that, so... Yeah, but he was the nicest guy, just welcoming to everybody, giant smile, as most of those voice actors are, you know. I think that's like the best level of fame because it can't really get to their head, but then they can go to something like a comic convention or someplace of like that and they say like, oh, I've, I've been this character for 20 years and, and then everyone just loves them and I think that's just the right level of fame for them, yeah. Especially when they probably haven't been expecting it, right? I mean, like, the, the, this is a 20-year-old cartoon, right? <laughs> yeah, And guess, the, yeah. all those people who watched it, their kids are growing up and there's a whole new generation of turtle lovers, you know? Yeah. So that's a fantastic thing. And we talked earlier about how uh, basically you just stuck your neck out. You got in touch with them and were like, here's some stories I wrote. What do you think? They were like, cool, let's do it. Yeah. So um, how many years ago is this now? Six or around six years ago? Yeah. Um, Peter Laird had been doing some new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle comics for a while. And I knew the characters pretty well, and they were doing a second series of. For, yeah, it was it was mostly designed for the Mirage staff members called Tales of the Ninja Turtles. Yeah, and uh, I figured I knew the story. Uh, I figured I knew the turtles pretty well, and I'd been writing for some time with some success, and so I contacted them. I ended up talking to Steve Murphy. Now, if anyone doesn't know Steve Murphy. If you ever read uh, the 1990s Archie Ninja Turtle comics, he probably wrote all those stories that you read because he 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 wrote them under the name dean clarain but that's steve murphy and he's he's spent years working on ninja turtles and he liked what i did and he showed it to peter laird and he must have liked what what i did and so i uh steve told me that i was the first uh kid who had grown up watching the original cartoon show and the movies to that i was the first one of those kids to end up working on ninja turtles that's a great accomplishment man that's an awesome honor to have (laughs) it's uh, i feel pretty it's pretty nice and i know a couple of the guys who work on the current nickelodeon tv show and it's sort of the same story for them now too and uh, so all these people that they got to grow up you know uh watching the old stuff and now getting to work on them yeah it's fun Oh, it's definitely a treat. So, Peter Laird, the nice guy? Um, him? I, I, so, I've met Kevin Eastman. He's very nice. I've only corresponded with Peter Laird over emails, and he was always all business. Oh, yeah? Uh, he, he, he 
Yeah, you know, Hamas. Yeah, of course. Well, <laughs> he's the one be... who kind of stuck with his hand in it, right? Like you don't hear Eastman doesn't really get too involved a lot. He's not really drawn much of the turtles these days, eh? Well, it's sort of flipped around now. What what happened was in the late '90s, Kevin Eastman wanted to do other things because Ninja Turtles sort of consumed both of their lives, and so Kevin Eastman, um, over a series of years, he gave most of his share of the property in the Turtles over to Peter Laird. And so uh, Peter was working on it until 2009 is when he finally sold it. <coughs> Excuse me. And then, so he was doing a new, there was a 2003 cartoon show. There was uh, that CGI movie that came out a few years back. And there was, and he did a series of black and white comics. And that was, I got to be a part of that. And now, uh, since the property has been sold to Viacom, uh, it's sort of flipped around because now Peter Laird has sort of stepped out of it, and Kevin Eastman, uh, he, he doesn't do he doesn't do as much. He's not he's not doing a regular comic, but he's done a couple issues for IDW, and he does a usually a special cover for each monthly. So he's doing oh okay twelve covers at least a year. Yeah. Oh okay. So uh, yeah, they're kind of in in and out doing the thing still. That's. That's when you score when you when you come up with that franchise when it, when you come up with an idea that's not just like a good story that lives forever but can be built on and franchised and then you're just pretty much set you know uh, yeah, well that's that's definitely what happened to them and I think they were sort of unprepared for it yeah well who knew that was coming I'd like to know like because uh, you know there's there's a fairly drastic difference between the comic books and the eighties cartoon obviously and I wonder who made that leap. You know what I mean? I would like. Uh, I can tell you. Oh yeah. Uh, well, um, a lot of this there's so Kevin and Peter are sort of the fathers of Ninja Turtles. Um, Mark Friedman is a man he uh, of Surge Licensing. He was the person who read the comics and sort of said, "Hey, I can turn this into toys." And he was the one who got um, Fred Wolf, the animation, mm. uh, the animation head and got Playmates toys over in Hong Kong to all talk to each other. He tried Mattel, he tried Hasbro, they all said, "Ah, what what's this? We don't need this." Oh, and really? it was okay. it was yeah, yeah, and it was this it was this company that's based in Hong Kong and uh they're called called Playmates and they were looking for they were looking for their Barbie or their He-Man or something. And they saw this as like, "Yeah, okay, this has got potential." And they all made this agreement that, "Okay, we're going to have the cartoon, we're going to have the toys. This is what it's going to be." And then I mean, I mean already after a couple of years, uh, Kevin and Peter had been making their living, and then it was it was it was this agreement that made it like you know you know made millions on the property. Oh yeah. And uh, they it, it was Fred Wolf got a hold of it was his name is David Weiss, and he was the person in charge of the cartoon, and he knew exactly the rules for you know the 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 obvious thing about Ninja Turtles like Leonardo and Raphael can't actually stick their pointy weapons into bad guys right yes, they've yeah. got to be robots there's there's all there's all these yes. sorts of things GI Joe must shoot lasers not bullets yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. so so i mean he knew the rules for the cartoon show and so he made the changes and so that's why you see the the 87 cartoon show the way it is it's large it's thanks to him and uh, that's when the colors came in too though wasn't it like they were was, all red headed before, weren't they? You know, I'm, I'm not 100 percent sure who made that choice, but it was something that just had to be decided on. Like it was probably it was probably someone uh, the the cartoon in conjunction with Playmates. They said, you know, we can't sell we can't sell 
the same turtle four yeah. times over. If 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 they're four different colors, yeah, then yeah. then we can sell four different toys instead of one. So I'm I'm pretty sure it was probably Playmates who said that. Yeah. Yeah, because I'm pretty sure I remember in the original comics there, because I know it was black and white, but I remember seeing a cover or something and being like, oh, they're all red. Oh, okay. You're right. Yeah, they used to be all red. Yeah, yeah. Man, they look so bad. They're bandanas, everyone. Original ones. Oh. <laughs> yeah. yeah they're are, so fun to fun. draw, too. They really are. And they were a staple for me and all my friends growing up when we were into art and drawing and stuff, because they were just... They were easy to draw. They looked badass when you did draw them. And <laughs> uh, it was it was great for kids at that age. You know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Man, it was fan- fantastic times. And that, and the first movie... So who... Was the first movie... I'm trying to remember who did it. Do you know who did the first movie? Um, like Universal? No, or... no, 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 no. Because, uh, no, I forget. what. What is it? Golden Harvest or something? Because at the time, it was the number one most... The most successful independent That's right. movie ever made. Yes. yes. And now... now it's not even in the top ten. Adjusted, adjusted. <laughs> well, no. Like if you adjusted for um, inflation, maybe it would be in the top ten still. But like, yeah. But at the time, it was the number one, and it was just yeah. So it was it was sort of the natural progression, and um, and that's Jim Henson, uh, the Jim Henson's company uh, doing the animatronics and the puppets in that, which are yeah still fun. Yeah. Oh yeah, they they pretty much you know it pretty much holds up. I watched it fairly recently, and I love the way I think it did bridge the original comics with the cartoon in a way where it just lent both like wonderful elements from both. And yeah, that was a great movie, man. It was fun, you know. And the animatronics, like Jim Henson, man, they pulled off some crazy stuff. And you know, for being like Muppet builders, the place they got to, especially with those turtles and. It's funny that yeah the the new CGI movie well I mean with the turtles being CGI like it's funny that I guess you could argue maybe that's that's newer or more sophisticated technology but when you think about it actually like the people who can make those suits back in 1990 that like it you you would basically have to get those same people again because no one is no one can make those sophisticated suits anymore yeah you ha- you basically have to get that same team together and they're going to be you know 20 30 years older but, but, and and once they go away people base it's it's like um uh harryhausen who did the stop motion animation yeah and, and yeah and he he passed away recently and now it's all you know cgi but you, you think you they'd need... be making another turtles movie if there wasn't cgi you can make money off of it, so I imagine I imagine one way or another, some yeah yeah that they yeah. they would be doing anyway. But yeah, but just like if you want if you wanted to do it with those suits again and to actually, you know, we we talked about this that 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 movie it does look good. Like you can tell sometimes, yeah, they're puppets. Yeah, you can tell that. But compare that to the CGI stuff that every once in a while, like they, they, they were real things that were interacting with the actors. So yeah, yeah, I thought it was pretty impressive. There's yeah. a certain flesh and blood to it. That was really impressive, especially for then. Cause those were the days that those movies were coming out when you didn't see much till you saw the movie. There's so many spoilers nowadays, but I mean, when Batman came out, the original, you hardly saw anything. You really hardly mm. saw much Batman until you actually saw the movie. Maybe a couple flashes or glimpses. You'd see it in magazines and yeah, stuff to get he, some hype, but yeah, but yeah. you didn't really know what was going to go on in it other than it was Batman and Jack Nicholson as Joker. Yeah, yeah. I remember having that feeling with the Turtles, too. So, you know, mm. I, it's, I, I hope, you know, I mean, God bless J.J., hopefully, when he pulls it off with Star Wars, is that his plan is to go in more of a... Guillermo del Toro route and actually integrate more of the actual puppetry with the CGI because that's the best way to go at this point, right? And del Toro, 
Or so, yeah, Del Toro is just like incredible for like Hellboy and uh, mm. you know the way it's like what were those dog things in Hellboy? I can't remember what they were called, but they were they were like half suit and half CGI, and then I think that just helps. You know, it's helping the Practi- transition. Practical effects definitely do help. Yeah. Like, I love the prequels. I'm actually a big uh, prequel apologist, but I will fully admit it doesn't look right yet. Like, (laughs) I mean, they're not great movies, Mm. but there are things that I treasure about them. But when it comes to the effects, we weren't, they weren't ready yet. You know, a digital movie, digital background, digital characters, all of that doesn't look right. You might as well just do a cartoon at this point, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, we'll see how he pulls it off in these ones because we all saw plenty of pictures of those guys running around in those suits with the big eyeballs on top and stuff, you know? Or Ninja Turtles. Yeah. This is Tony. This is Derek. And we are Drunk on Comics. And you're listening to An Elegant Weapon. Ah, Star Wars. Nothing but Star Wars. Give me those Star Wars. Don't let them end. first time that Jabba the Hutt scene in the in episode four yeah yeah at the in in Moss Eisley and they did that thing with Harrison Ford stepping on his tail now at the time oh, like yeah that was <clears> awful. yeah well do you want yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, so at the time and and I heard like I used to subscribe to like Star Wars Insider and at the time I know George Lucas was saying like oh isn't this an impressive technology we can actually digitally have Harrison Ford like move him up a couple frames, then move him back down. And I was thinking like, yeah, that is impressive technology, and you shouldn't do it because <laughs> because you watch that scene is like that's not that's not the way Hans should be interacting with Jabba the way you see him from Return of the Jedi. So even like twelve year old me, this is, there you go. Like I mean, like you were talking about writing stories. I I was writing stories. I I kind of I was interested in story structure even from a young age, even though I didn't know it. And like I watch, I was like this is wrong like and and it didn't that wasn't you know a deal breaker for me i still enjoyed watching yeah, it's the gimmicky those. you know but 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 i i knew right off that was the time the moment i knew there's something wrong with the way george lucas thinks as a storyteller that he's inherently he's got the wrong ideas because he was thinking like isn't this great that we can include this extra scene and the technology we can do and i i understood where he was coming from like yeah the technology is impressive you should cut that scene yeah and it just sort of went on like, and like you did and, in the first place like you yeah. did in the first place, yeah. yeah. And then, and then I just knew after that that, and and that's sort of sort of the way I, I look at his storytelling. That that you know he talks about the hero's journey and all that, and like yeah, a hero's journey. That's a, that's important in understanding how stories work. It's not very helpful in telling an interesting story. I think, but whatever. Well, I think he he concentrated on too much things that outgrew him, like the technology <laughs> involved. You know what I mean? Like he's probably still got some stories in there, but he's just he. He's out, yeah, he literally, his own technology has outgrown himself, and, you know, that's what he seemed to concentrate more yeah. on than actually... Well, I listened to other stories, like there was the the, the whole um, Death Star sequence in at the end of, of Episode 4, that, like, that whole sequence, like, when, the, when they first had the raw footage of it, it was a total mess, and it was actually his wife at the time who edited it and made it make sense, and, like, she was the one, like, like I don't, I, I don't really understand what they were what they were looking at. like I, w- I would be interested in seeing like an earlier cut of it or something because like apparently in the room in the editing bay george lucas didn't really understand that han solo needed to come 
in at the end for the Hail Mary. It's like, whoa, you're all free, kid. Let's blow this thing. Go home. Like, they shot that scene, but apparently George Lucas didn't really understand where to put it. And sh- and it was his wife, who his wife, who said like, okay, and now this comes. It's like, oh, really? Like, yeah, because everyone, this is the part where everyone's going to cheer. Like, even she understood the value of Han Solo that he was going to be the guy that everyone would love. Absolutely. And yeah. and a, but I mean, uh, to to me, like, like I'm 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 not entirely knocking him. Like, you know, I kind of I I see the value of a lot of his ideas and stuff, but I just think he's a bit. Uh, off of it in terms in terms of a storyteller, I don't think I don't think he quite understands how everything should be put together. I, I yeah, it's uh, I, I tend to agree with you. Things yeah. are kind of you know that's why I think well it was best that you had other guys directing the second two back in the day, right? <laughs> there, there you go. Yeah, yeah, like I mean, what's the best one? Empire Strikes Back wasn't directed by him. Like yeah, yeah. absolutely. You know what? Uh, she also she did the same thing at. In Raiders of the Lost Ark, she—I uh, don't know if she edited a lot of it, but but I think she must have edited some of it. And then when they watched the first cut of it, um, it didn't include that's that, that uh, almost last scene where uh, Indy and Marion are on the steps, and he's like saying, "Those fools—they don't know what they've got." And she says, "I know what I've got." And the, and they walk off. Just that little scene just before. Yeah, um, yeah, the yeah. the ending with the crates and like you see all the secrets that are you know inside that huge room, yeah. like that that scene with Indy and Marion didn't exist. So they watched it. It was like Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, and his wife, and and they saw this and that scene was missing. And she said, "Okay, where's Marion?" And and they said like, <laughs> "Well, you assume like you're supposed to assume that he brought her back to America." And she said, "Yeah, you didn't show that, and you didn't give any real resolution to their you know their love that's happening. You need to film this scene. This is what needs to happen." Which, which I love that because not only did she basically school George, but she also schooled Steven Spielberg. That like you know it's, it wasn't a huge requirement, but just like that scene, like yeah, here here you see them, they're happy. She seemed to have an eye for the audience then of those secondary characters that kind of uh, not to be forgot about. You know what I mean? It's easy to just get tunnel vision, I guess, into the lead story or whatever. But maybe yeah, I'd... yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So let me ask you, this was recently brought up that they were discussing uh, recasting Indiana Jones. Oh, are and, they? Yeah, the first name, they started throwing around a name like Bradley Cooper and stuff. Now, see, I have always actually been a proponent of this. I've always thought that why not treat a character like Indiana Jones <laughs> as James Bond? Well, that's, and, a, that's the direct thing because yeah. he basically is a variation on James Bond. Absolutely. So of course, yeah. You know, it'd be very easy. And you could do earlier on stories if you had a younger... Which they have done, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, yes, of course, uh, you know, young Indian stuff. But my, uh, my, I've always figured, I knew that that's going to happen. The only reason that it really hasn't happened, I mean, apart from those TV, that TV show that I've never seen, like, the only reason it really hasn't happened, I think, is probably because of Steven Spielberg. But I, like, uh, we were talking about how eventually everything is going to be remade. <laughs> yeah. Like, like I mean, I mean, more than Ninja Turtles, more than anything, I'm a big Ghostbusters fan, and they're talking about Ghostbusters 3. Like, and and I, I've known sort of this story since, like, 1997. Dan Aykroyd has been talking about this, and, like, I kind of know, like, no, it's not going to happen anytime soon. That said, I, I entirely know a new Ghostbusters movie, a sequel or a complete reboot, is going to happen someday. And yep. like I'm not, I'm not particularly. I'm, I'm. It can happen. Whatever. I won't freak out. But like I'm not particularly excited at that thought. But I know it's going to happen someday. But like, mm, oh well. 
Yeah, I think uh, I have no problem with reboots. But it's just it depends on if it's uh, what the reason is for. Do you know what I mean? Like uh, they've been talking about yeah. a Highlander reboot for years, which mm. a lot of people are like, leave it alone. It's a cheesy classic 80s movie. But that's one of the movies in my mind that I'm like, that would be really suited for today's technology and what they could do with it. You know what I mean? Yeah. But then there's other ones like Ghostbusters where you're kind of like, okay, sequel might be fun, but great to see Bill and everything again, but a reboot would be real hard. Like, how do you replace Bill Murray, you know? Ghostbusters is sort of an interesting one because, like Star Trek, and I mean, I know that they, you know, they did a reboot of Star Trek with those with the characters again, but like, you know, it had opportunities where it was based around based around either like a government or an industry or something. I mean, that's what that's what Dan Aykroyd always wanted. Like Ghostbusters, the those are those main characters, and that's why the movie's actually interesting. But it lends itself easily to being about Ghostbusters as a company, and oh, so yeah. like you could yeah, so you could do like I mean, and and fans do like Ghostbusters Chicago and stuff. They do their own little fan videos and stuff. So so that one has more possibilities than just a well. I don't, I don't know. Maybe Highlander. You could go farther back in time to show different ones i don't know yeah uh it's just the epic sweep sweep of the kind of thing i see in my head i think it would just be it'd be fun times but you know you know whatever you know people are you know i think it's great it's just like comic books you've had variations on the batman for <coughs> for 75 years there's been how many different batmans how many different versions yeah. of them. there's no reason you can't do that with film either you know yeah. james bond proves that yeah you know i'm not I'm not. Uh, I, I never complain about this stuff, and I'm not hard against anything. At the same time, when you talk about that, like comics, like I, I, uh, uh, telling stories, I try to point out to people that, you know, the, the comic comic book fans will generally say like, oh, well, you need to have a reboot every so often, otherwise the characters get stale. And I say like, think about that for a second. That's actually sort of a weird. Th that's actually a weird thing to say because there's not really any other kind of fiction that does reboots like that. I mean, I mean, even mythology and stuff, you know, people might do variations on certain stories, but that's more just the storyteller wanting to, I don't yeah, know, yeah, I don't yeah. know, play, play around with it. But, like, I mean, Hercules, you, you think of Hercules as this character like Superman, but, like, there's that, but also he's got a set story. There's his 12 labors. There's, you know, the particular adventures he went on. Like, there's an actual beginning and end to what he did so when i find like like the the dc did the new 52 i'm not on the one hand i'm not inherently against the idea on the flip side of that i i read those comics and and they're doing things like play around with uh, oh here we're reintroducing the first time he's met lex Luthor, the first time he's met lois the first time the all it's all these first times it's all like i mean and they're leading up to like oh he's gonna fight dark side basically basing everything off of comics that have already come before and so when they say like you want to refresh it like that's technically that's not refreshing that's that what what that is is that's playing off your expectations of these past stories it's like retelling it's retelling some of the stories and maybe oh, yeah. yeah yeah just just in my opinion like like it is weird and maybe you might want to like i don't i didn't want to read another Superman origin story. I want to read like here. Here's what's going to happen next. But whatever. 
I think you have a total good point there. It's uh, it, it, it's exactly like that. These people are having a chance to, you know, retell these stories that have been done before in their own version, which is exciting for <coughs> them. But uh, you know, it is it is kind of taking the whole. But I look at the most successful thing that's probably come out of the new Fifty Two being the whole Court of Owls story, and that's you know that could have been done at any time. That could have been done without see, the reboot. Well, well, you know, that that kind of goes to my point, though. I think that. With that, with um, some of the amazing Spider-Man stuff, Spy, uh, Doc, uh, Doc Spidey and like, yeah, like Spider yeah. Island and all that, look at a lot of the changes that they they were able to accomplish. Like a lot of the new storytelling they were able to accomplish didn't depend at all on the fact that they were coming out of reboots. Yep. And so, so I just find again, like, like I'm not against it, but the the most interesting things you're going to accomplish are always like that. They're not dependent. I find on. On saying, oh, this time the Kents are alive. This time, this character's gay. Something like that, you know. Yeah, for the sake of itself. I mean, you know, if if, if things stick to the story, I can understand. You know, them maybe switching things up to be a little bit interesting. You know, it well, just was... playing on on characters' expectations. Yeah, the thing yeah. was, like, I mean, and 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 hey, I think gay characters are are great to have. But the funniest one to me was when DC did uh, Golden Age Green Lantern. Yeah, <laughs> and like and and what I I watched as as people on the news on like on news were trying to report this, and they were saying that like okay Green Lantern's gay, but it's not the one in the movie. Yeah, it's another one. Yeah, whatever. Like like, like it was funny. They were res- they were wrestling with trying to explain that it was the fact that it was this alternate Green Lantern in another <laughs> dimension. I was like 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 I mean again it was playing off expectations. But that the wider audience has no care about. Well, you got to remember the old people. You know, eventually they'll get to a point when they'll be like, "This Green Lantern and this happened to this." Like, it's so. See, that's only going to be that's only going to be us when we're old because, like, my grandparents actually didn't. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, eventually. Well, well, no, I'm I'm just thinking that they didn't give a shit about like you know about Golden Age Green Lantern. Like, yeah, yeah, I might have read that when I was a kid. I don't know. But all of us kids who were younger, growing up in the 80s and 90s and 70s and what have you, now that we're all in our like late 20s, 30s, 40s, we're in control of everything. So that's why there's been such a resurgence and yeah. fan culture well, t- just took over because the kids grew up, you know? Yeah, but like, like – and, and that's the other thing that like even the sort of the post – there was a little bit of this in the baby boomer generation but especially everything post that that now – Everything in society, yeah, like our, our youth gets recycled when, like, our probably for your grandparents too, like, you know, apart from, a, a, you know, some some good movies like Wizard of Oz or some some example, but like by and large, like, there's stuff that they enjoyed when they were kids did not get recycled later on. But anyway, yeah, not half as much as what we're gonna have going on here now. I, f- I figure that when when, we're, when I'm in an old folks home, and I'll like this, but like when I'm in an old folks home, like there'll be a Nintendo and a Super Nintendo. You yeah. Know? Oh yeah. Still... Well, that, that's what I figure. Like, and, and it's Xboxes, gonna be boxes. Yeah. Yeah, and it's gonna be amusing when you when when it comes to that. But like you'll realize like, but I'll just think about that. Like this this wasn't the way it was for my grandparents, but whatever. Hi, this is Mike Mignola, and you're listening to An Elegant Weapon.
believe it's time to go. But walking side by side. So, um, let's talk about fucking devil dealers for a bit. That sounds good. You were kind enough to send me a copy to peruse, which I, uh, I highly enjoyed. Thanks. Um, you're obviously somebody who's been uh, working on their craft for a while, because a uh, very well-written book, very well-structured, um, you know, and we've heard, heard you tonight mention a few times about structure and stuff, so you're definitely like uh, a student of the writing craft, it would seem. Um, why don't you tell the people what this book is about, because it's fun as heck. Okay, Devil Dealers. Um... So if you're familiar with The Legend of Faust or uh, fun stories where people either bargain with the devil or sell their soul or have a contest, uh, things like The Devil Went Down to Georgia by Charlie Daniels. Um, this is Devil Dealers is about people who are so good at what they can do that they beat the devil. So you've got characters like the world's greatest gambler, or the world's greatest chess master, a blues player, and a woman uh, so fast that she can outrace Satan every time he comes to claim her soul. <laughs> and uh, they're all working together for different ends. Some of them want to try to save either their soul or some or uh, someone else's soul, or else some of them are after wealth or you know eternal life, all that sort of interesting stuff that you can get out <laughs> that you can yeah. get out of out of the supernatural. Um, it got me. It wasn't what I expected at all because you're going into something like this, and you've heard plenty of stories about deals with the devils, devil over the years, but you've taken such an original twist on this in that uh, you've kind of taken the epicness out of the devil and Satan as as he's been, you know, commonly portrayed the past few years, uh, you know, very cosmically powerful and stuff. But uh, you've kind of taken it back to those Faustian stories and stuff. Yeah, where, uh, yeah, it's uh, he gets his own once in a while. It's possible to trick the devil. It's actually possible to get away with it, which yeah. happens here and there in your book, which is very enlightening, you know? Oh, that's good, yeah. yeah. So um, you're right. So there's a lot of stories, good stories, like Buffy the Vampire Slayer or Hellboy and all these different things where there's some – the devil or some supernatural evil is the biggest, scariest thing that the hero has to fight. Devil Dealers is different. It's a bit more like um, old-timey folk tales where the devil might pop up and, you know, challenge you to a certain contest. And in this case, and in this case, so um, that's just what the devil does. That he, he does have, he or she does have these supernatural powers, but the devil is not trying to control all the world or to destroy all the world what he's trying to do is to take souls and to get one ups on people one person at a time now it's it's still the stakes are still pretty high because if you lose against them you're probably going to lose your soul but the but but and like you say so you've got the world's greatest gambler and in any other story you'd think that well you know if you gamble against the devil of course you're, you're going to lose but this guy's so good that he manages to win. And so what does he get to do after that? It, oh, in this story, that's how it that's how it opens up. We've got Greg Gagné, and for those of you who know a bit of French, that Gagné, so that means to win. Uh, um, <coughs> there's a NASCAR driver, by the way, with the last name of Gagné, so it's not entirely unprecedented to have to have some <laughs> world-class winner to, to have the, that last name. 
But um, so Greg Gagne, so he's probably the world's greatest gambler. And um, he figures out that he's playing a game against the devil in disguise. So he bets his soul. And what he wins is, is half of all the, mo- the money on the world. <laughs> so what that means is that afterwards he's wondering, well, so what does this actually mean? And then he goes to his bank account and it turns out that the bank gives him uh gives him money in an accident in his favor. That's something I forget. I gave him like $666,000, Yeah. Yeah. He gave him $666,666.66. That's what he got by accident. (laughs) And then he'll, he'll do things like he'll uh, go down a street and he'll find, you know how some people, they go to a garage sale and they find an old painting that they just like, and they discover, Oh, this is actually worth a million dollars. So money is just being thrown at him left, right and center. And, and and just changing his life, and it seems isn't there, on the one. Sorry, isn't there a scene yeah. where like he buys an old coat and the pockets are stuffed full of money? <laughs> yeah, at one at one point he just buys a man's coat. He says like, "Hey, can I have your jacket?" What? Like, yeah, I'll give you two hundred, three hundred bucks for it. Oh, okay. And so the the guy's very excited to do this, and it just turns out that the for whatever reason, either either that it's supernatural or that man didn't pay attention. Who knows? You you don't really get the explanation, but because everything goes Greg's way now that he reaches into the pockets and it's it, there's extra money. Yeah. So he gets to, so he made a profit by selling, by buying <laughs> a jacket for 200, $300. Yeah. That's, that's just great. Uh, okay. Yeah. So these people that he meets up with and you've got these people doing their thing. I mean, they're, you don't really want to, I don't know if you call it superpowered or not, but they have gained, certain abilities due to their dealings with the devil now how would you explain that yeah that's a fun thing um you've got greg gagnier the world's greatest gambler and uh he ends up beating the devil and i just like this idea things like well when you look at superheroes if you look at the flash he definitely has superpowers because not only is he just original you know he started out as a guy who is super fast but over the years, that has sort of become the Flash is in, is like speed incarnate. That that that's kind of what he represents in the DC world. Same with Hulk. Like over uh, Hulk over in Marvel, it used to be that he was just you know if he got angry, then then he would turn into the Hulk and then he could smash and it was great. But over time, he has sort of come to represent the idea of anger and all the power that can come from that. So, so he's actually representing all of that in his own world. Yeah, I'm sort of intrigued by that idea that, you know, I'm I'm kind of wondering if we have some of these people like that in real life, like Usain Bolt, like who is now the fastest man alive, and talk about superheroes. I mean, his Bolt is in his last name, right? Yeah, yeah. totally. <laughs> and and sci- and there's scientists who are saying that like that he might be very close to like reaching the upper limit of human speed. It's very, it's, it, it, they're actually kind of bordering on this superhero idea. And uh, these are some of the things that sort of int- interested me when doing this. Yeah. So you've got the world's greatest chess player. <coughs> and uh, on the one hand, it doesn't sound like a superpower. It, you, literally, you would think that, oh, well, it's just he's a very smart guy and he can, you know, probably win every match. Well, is it that, that that's how you look at through one lens. If you look at through the other lens, like, well, what if he's just if it's a, an exceptional superpower, like just a, a superpower that you wouldn't really recognize in the real world. 
and that goes with some of the other things like uh, well, with, you've got uh, Greg's ability to gain all this money. It seems, on the one hand, it seems supernatural because money is being thrown at him from every direction. Yeah. But on the other hand, it, when, when it comes to that, like the, the devil stuff is definitely, I mean, that's magic. Yeah. But when it comes to this, this money being thrown at Greg, like none of it's actually technically impossible. It's just really unlikely that so, one person could be so lucky to have money being thrown at him from all sides. Yeah, for sure. Have you ever seen that uh, Stan Lee's Real Superheroes or whatever show? I know about it, but I've never seen it. Yeah, but he just has, like, real people on, but there'll be, like, people who can, like, withstand extreme cold temperatures, so they go running out in the snow for, like, 18 hours. And it's, you know, like, people with that kind of thing. Like, they can hear music and and weird stuff like that. So, yeah, I totally hear what you're saying. Is it, like... You know the upper levels of certain abilities that humans have. You know, like, well, that's just, yeah, yeah. That's a sort yeah. of an idea that appeals to me is that like like the Olympics were not that long ago, and typically when we think about the Olympics, we think of uh, the athletes. We think like, oh, these are really exceptional athletes, but they are you know you know they're, they're they are people. We just think of them as people. Like yeah, yeah. like if, but also if you think of them from another just a different angle, like these are really exceptional people who are doing some. You know, I think. You know, not just not just impressive things, but sometimes incredible things, and so oh, yeah. and so it's just sort of you know celebrating what uh, what a person can do, and that sort of goes into devil dealers. That in this case, celebrating what a person could do ultimately leads to like, oh, you can actually if if a person is that good at something, whether whether it's you know just playing blues music as one character does, like if you're just so good at one particular thing, you might even be able to beat supernatural forces. Yeah. Yeah, you might even be able to beat the devil. Beat the devil. Sounds <laughs> kind of fun. Beat the devil. <laughs> cool, man. That's good times. <laughs> I love the way that you've got the story structured with, uh, because this group of people that come together for various reasons. I don't want to spoil too much of the book because it's a it's a great read, and uh, you've got it structured with their backstories. You know, explaining kind of why they're doing what they're doing, leading up to the devil's kind of own personal backstory, which was done in a really cool way, which is probably my favorite part of the book, to be honest. I love well, that's the way good. That, I think that that's my favorite. Yeah. I think that's my favorite part, too. Yes. Yeah. So monkeys so, uh, on a farm. What? Who cares? Makes sense. I, <laughs> I, I'm, I dig it. You know, what I mean? well, I'll tell everyone. Yeah. So. So, yeah. So you meet the world's greatest chess master and then he tells Greg, Greg is sort of the first character that you're introduced to, and he's asking, well, so what's your story? And then you see the chess master, Edmund, and that, yeah, I played a game of chess against the devil, and I won. And so you get this quick, he, his is a very quick recap page that just explains, like, okay, so he had an epic uh, fight on his own. Like, I mean, And that's the thing, these are all epic fights, but they're done through music contests and, and uh, gambling and chess games and all that sort of thing. Sort of stuff. So really mundane, mundane seeming things, but that they're actually very important. <clears throat> and you go through all this, and you see how the woman fastest, how um, she ended up with her speed being able to outrace the devil. You see a bit of insight into her life. The very last one that I do is the devil himself. Just before he's about to have the last contest, he tells everyone this story, and it seems it seems like a made a made up story, entirely fictional. And what it's about is a farm. <laughs> a farm and uh there's there's a an old farmer and he 
gets the farm all looking nice. He sets up irrigation. He does all sorts of things. And you realize after a while that it's actually, he's retelling the book of Genesis, but telling it as if the Garden of Eden is this farm in the southern states. <laughs> and, and yeah, and, and Lucifer is one of the farmhands. And uh, he thinks that he's hot stuff until one day uh, the, the farmer, who, <laughs> who is God, uh, um, uh, brings some monkeys onto the farm and says, you have to take care of these animals. You have to take care of these critters. They mean the world to me. And this really puts Lucifer out that, that he thinks that God loves these monkeys or humans more than he does. I mean, and the, if you think about it, that's, uh, that's sort of what I figured what an angel a uh, uh, stuck-up angel, anyway, would sort of think of humanity that if he thinks that he's he or she is sort of this, you know, on the level of humanity, that how would they actually view mortal mortal yeah. men and women? That we would we would be like pigs or animals. Would well, you ever or see the? Did you ever see the prophecy with Christopher Walken? No, I haven't. Uh, brilliant old movies, but uh, he's Gabriel, and he comes to Earth to wage a war on humans. Uh, and he calls them monkeys. That's what he calls humans. He's like, uh, okay, fucking monkeys. And that's what the, all the bad, angry angels call, call us. And, uh, it reminded me of that. And uh, I was like, yeah, that's totally how they'd look at us. Some of them like fucking okay, monkees, yeah. you know what I mean? And it, yeah. In yeah. any case, the, the, the stuck up, the, the, you know, the, what would end up being the evil angels. Yeah. That yeah. would eventually become devils. Yeah. So, so he sees humanity as beneath him and that, causes him to and and you see it's a revolt on the farm and he picks up he picks up a pitchfork which which i kind of enjoy and and that's and and you realize and so and so it sort of casts the devil in this story it's in a different light he is not he's not the ultimate evil for being you know it's not just some ultimate evil what he is is he really hates humanity because he blames all of humans for um for putting this rift between himself and god and that if he can just claim all these different souls, it's his way of getting revenge. That this is he wants to make all uh, every person as miserable down in hell as yeah. he is. Well, you and kinda, that's sort of his motivation. Yeah. Yeah, you almost make it. Uh, you almost describe it in a way of, of an addiction that he's addicted to gambling for people's souls. You know, it's uh, like it's just well, so. Eh, I didn't think of that, but yeah, but it is. It's his one compelling thing to do because it's either it's either he gets to have these little various challenges with different exceptional people or else he's just down in hell stewing and so he's gonna spend as much time as he can scheming yeah 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 Uh, i love the portrayal i love the level you put him on to the point where he 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 wants his fiddle back you know like it's it's something that's just important to him and he's he's fighting for that too i want my fiddle back you know um yeah We've talked uh, the beautiful story. People definitely you want to read this, but also the book uh, is very beautiful. Uh, beautiful inks and colors in this book uh, over some uh, cool. very nice pencils. Yeah, I better talk about the great people I worked with on this. Yes. So the artist is uh, Brett Wood. Hi, Brett. <laughs> hello. Uh, he, hello over there. Uh, uh, Brett, uh, he's over in Ohio. He did an excellent job, and I can't thank him enough for uh, for working so hard and long on this with me. And so he, so he's the artist. He did a fantastic job. Uh, the inker is Vic Moya. He's over in Vegas, and he did likewise did an excellent job. And over in the UK, we had uh, Christy Swan, 
and you were talking before that she has colored some things before, including Transformers. I, I'm sure there's lots of other cool stuff that she's worked on that that you know I'm forgetting right now. But anyway, yeah. but she's so people might have seen some of her work before. So she's over in England and she did a fantastic job coloring this. And so this was a big. Everyone did a, a wonderful job, and it was a big international project for us to put together. Um, don't you love that? It, it's, it's the wonders of today that you can get people from all these places to come together and make a piece of art like that, you know? It is neat that, yeah, you're not limited to, if, you know, in my case, that, I, that I'm a writer, that I, I you know, I, I can draw. Nobody wants a comic book drawn by me. Uh, <laughs> but, but, yeah, but I can, you know, I can go out on the Internet and I can find great people like Brett who are willing to work with me on on comics that's awesome yeah it's uh it's it's a great it's a great thing it's a beautiful thing it's uh mm. it's uh it's fun it's um it's a good book um i'm trying to think <laughs> about things to say without spoiling it too much but uh what's the studio the dot com what's uh how do you pronounce the the site well that... our publisher yeah the publisher the publisher is marcosia they're over in england too Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. That's neat. Yeah, I saw that name and, uh, you know, are they, they got other things they put out and such, I'm guessing, yeah. Such, I'm guessing. I'm sorry, say that again. <laughs> <laughs> are there any other titles that they put out that I guess we'd know or have heard of? Okay. Marcosia, what have they put out? Uh, they put out King Kong books, um, Starship Troopers, if anyone ever remembers Starship Troopers. Apparently okay. the books for Starship's Tro- for Starship Troopers are a lot better than that movie. I, I don't know. I've never read. I've never read the books, but apparently, apparently the uh, books are actually somewhat thought provoking and interesting, whereas the movie was not. Um, Starship Troopers. They do a lot of all kids ages stuff and, and well horror stuff too, but all kids, uh, all ages stuff like uh, some Sherlock Holmes type stuff. Lots of oh, that's fun, cool. Interesting. So, yeah, that's. Uh... Uh, sorry forgive me a little bit i'm like a couple dubs in and it's getting late <laughs> i i know I, I know we're both lower on energy i keep having like a question that i forget the question i was like where was i gonna go with that <laughs> oh yeah i wanted to ask you what did you grow up reading as far as books and such what did i grow up reading well we touched on ninja turtles no no as, as far as like oh. actual books like okay uh, prose prose stuff yeah. um because this is horror stuff i, I i'm when I was a teenager, I a young teenager, I read a fair bit of Lovecraft. Um, Jules Verne is still one of my favorite novelists. I love his work because a lot of them, and and I think a lot of people today sort of just view his stuff as kids' stories, but he put a lot of effort into them. And what they are is they are big adventures. Yeah. But I think he's got a great handle on and and his characters. They're not. He does not go deep into his characters. There is no. You don't get inner monologues from them. But He's all about this is the adventure and this is some exception. Again, except I, I, I guess I'm drawn to this this idea of exceptional people. Like here's this uh, Phileas Fogg. He's this uh, very stern, very um, what's the word? He, he's he's practical, but like 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 he just he just by the by the book sort of man, very proper Englishman who thinks that hey. It should be possible to go around the world, <laughs> go around the world. So like, I, so I'm going to do it when no one else believes him. He's got this great understanding of different types of people all over the world, and like, okay, so here's this adventure, and here's here's um, 
a story about people and they're gonna they're gonna build an airship or you know go to the moon and I just really like that stuff. Yeah, that's uh, it's inspirational stuff. You know, you ever thought about writing for like other mediums? Like, ever thought about maybe ever written a script or a screenplay or anything I've like written... that? Ever interesting? <laughs> I've written short stories. Um, that's where I'm kind of, apart from comics, that's what I'm kind of leaning, leading towards later in life that I'm sure at some point I want to put together a collection of short stories. I don't, I, I mean, like when I was a teenager, I wrote, you know, a novel, a bad novel, <laughs> kind, of for, kind of for practice. But, and, and you know, and, and, and that, that sort of exercise helps you later in life. But, you know, I, it's kind of funny, actually, that today that the novel has sort of become the number one, the number one uh, literary item. When, when you and I don't think a lot of people will be familiar with this, but like if you actually go into like the history of literature, like the novel, I mean, it, it's called novel because you know, like novel as in like this new idea. Like the novels were always used to be looked down upon, like when they first when they were first introduced, and. So you'd have all these different other these different other forms of fiction, and just so far yet, I don't really have a novel in me. I don't know why everyone says that that no, they want to write some particular novel. I'm saying, yeah, yeah, oh, that used to be the I, big no, thing. No, yeah, nothing, but... nothing's really struck me just yet, but like maybe someday. I'm well, more interested in either graphic novels and comics, and and then uh, short stories. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of provocative people of just, you know, I mean, look at Stephen King. He can do the novel or he can do the short stories and, you know, either way, he's, I'm sure he's... Well, he's great at both, yeah. Yeah, happy with what he's doing, you know, and I could see Devil Dealers on screen easily. Ooh. Oh, nice. yeah, absolutely. I I'll, could... I'll, I'll find someone in Hollywood for you to... Oh, sure. <laughs> I'll keep my ear to the ground. Yeah, but, sure. Uh, you know, uh, absolutely. Tell all the fine people out here where they can find Devil Dealers and you and your cohorts and such. Oh, wow. I'll try to keep it short. You can, everyone, if you want to say hi, uh, follow me on Twitter at, at Ross May Writer. Um, you can check out Devil Dealers. The best place to check it out is devildealers.com. Uh, from there, you can find it's available on Comixology. It's four bucks uh, on the website quickcomics.com. It's uh, you can buy a trade paperback. It's very nice. It's uh, what something over 120 pages, a full color. Uh, you can buy a copy for 20 bucks Canadian. Ooh, in the back, everyone. Hmm. There's this beautiful pinup in the back, and it's done by this artist named Michael Dooney. So it's sort of this, you know, in the story, the devil. Uh, changes appearance and shape shifts at one point into a beautiful woman and so I got Michael to do this uh, uh, excellent classic style pinup uh, people yeah, it's will be familiar beautiful. yeah it's very yeah. nice uh, uh, people will be familiar with Dooney's work from if you've ever seen um, the box art from uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles the first ninja the first uh, Nintendo game Okay, yeah. Or if you've seen the third Nintendo game called Manhattan Project, or even Tournament Fighters, a lot of things like that. Just some of the most famous Ninja Turtle images. Like, that's that's who Michael Dooney is. He wow. did those. That's yeah. cool. That's excellent. So anyway, so yeah, Osme Writer, uh, DevilDealers.com is the best place to check out everything. I'd appreciate if anyone comes have a look. If you and, you know, read it on Comicsology. Read it as a trade paperback. 
sure would appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, you people should check it out. It's a very, very entertaining read. Uh, I really, really enjoyed it and I really enjoy talking to you. Thank you so much for your patience, sir, and dealing with all the bullshit technical difficulties that can be tossed at the podcast world occasionally. But uh, I really appreciate you putting all the extra time and to get this out to the people, you know? Well, hey, I appreciate you having me on. Thanks. No problem. We'll definitely do this again sometime in the future and, uh, you know, uh, keep it Canadian and uh, (laughs) all that kind of stuff. So, uh, everybody, do everything that Ross said to do. Um, We'll be back at you very soon with episode 98. Uh, the 100 is creeping. It's creeping very, very closely close to us. And eventually we'll get there and we'll do something fun and special for that. But for now, go read Devil Dealers. Fiddle battles, people. Fiddle battles. That's all I, I have to say. I love it that you think that's a good selling point for them. I think like, it's the best say, selling it's a comic point. Book, but, yeah, no, but. I know you people understand. When I say fiddle battles... That's fucking badass. So go out there and do that. But uh, other than that, that's all we have for this week. I don't know what We'll see you later. Thank you. into that fondue, you little cocksucker. <laughs> <laughs>